Hi guys and welcome to another week's anime uh, podcast recording. This week we have Dan and James and well me talking about the shit show that is the UK Labour Party. This podcast, was ob- when you listen to it, is obviously recorded a wee while ago before we quite knew the extent of Keir Starmer's utter country. Um, this was recorded before he fired Rebecca Long-Bailey. Um, it was recorded before he started talking about black people having, quote, a moment. Um, and all that kind of stuff. So um, some of our comments may uh, be more kind to him than he perhaps uh, deserves, but I hope you think that overall the discussion is still fair. Enjoy it and give us a shout if uh, if you want to get in touch. That'd be really great. Uh, welcome to the Anime Podcast. Uh, today we've got me, your host. Today is James. We've also got Will. Hi. Uh, we got Dan. Hello. Uh, so today we're going to do things slightly different. We're going to have more of a free-form conversation rather than a, a sort of a rigorous um, debate or discussion. Uh, and we're we're going to be talking about labor, the history of labor, where labor are going, where they might not be going. Uh, so I guess the first thing to do is let's actually just talk about the very beginnings of labor, because my my theory is that within the DNA of labor is where the issue lies. Like they were set up, you know, with the, the second international in their blood, which was um, was set up without anarchists, trade unionists. Um, it's very much a social democracy. Um, idea. So instead of throwing over capitalism, it's more um, like rehabilitate it. So what do you guys know about the the start of labor in history? Do you want to go first, Dan? Yeah, well, I mean, because because I've sort of worked backwards to socialism, from what I've observed, a lot of people tend to study it and then kind of come to it through study, whereas I kind of inherited inherited it and then I've been working my way backwards so my history of labor isn't that great as as the party themselves I'm more interested in the wider socialist movement within within Britain so I mean I know I know that so tell tell us what you do know because I think a lot of people are are unsure or don't even know about the the history of the Labour Party. I mean, take oh. my, someone like my grandma, for instance. She will vote Labour. Yeah. Because her dad voted Labour, and that's just what you do in our family. Um, and her family has always voted Labour. But she wouldn't be able to tell you anything about Labour. Yeah, party. yeah. Well, I tend to find that is, that, that is the case with a lot of people. And, I mean, like myself including, I have, I have made active efforts to try and learn a bit more. But, mm-hmm. I mean, my, my knowledge goes back as far as... Keir Hardy really and his entry into parliament but I, I've always had the sense that Labour is very much the softer side of the British establishment um, especially like the, the softer side of the British middle class and that it doesn't seem I think initially there was more working class involvement with it but to me now it just seems like very much a party of intellectual which is not a bad thing necessarily. It it just it, it doesn't. I look at other countries and their sort of socialist parties and their socialist movements, and they seem very much rooted in the working class. Maybe not so much nowadays, but initially. Whereas Labour's, it, it almost came uh, as a parliamentary party and given to the working class in a sense. Mm. Um, that that's my sense. I'm not like I said. My history isn't that great. It's it's something I am working on, but. That's the feeling that I get from Labour as a whole, really. Yeah, well. So, like, um, I suppose the way I was taught about it in school, um, so in Scotland, when I was at the many years ago I was at school, (laughs) and we do a module called Conflict and Power, um, the rise of such and such in the 20th century. I can't remember the name of the module. Um, But we are told, I suppose it starts off with the Industrial Revolution and how... um, like working class people had antagonistic um, interest to the owners of the means of production. Um, the trade union movement started to try and mitigate um, the harms that were being done to working class people. 
and the Fabian Society emerged um, out of this, I suppose. So like the Fabian Society, as we were taught, um, were like a group of intellectuals who um, were like fairly well to do, fairly well off people like George Bernard Shaw, I think was one. Um, And they thought that instead of having like trade union movements, we should have like um, political represent, like expressly political representation. Um, to like try and change things via the mechanisms of parliament. So like there was always this like fairly tenuous, um, fairly patronizing, I suppose, link between um, the Fabian movement and the trade union movement. And then this kind of was totally, totally scrapped. Like this kind of relation between the two was totally scrapped when Blair took over and um, famously abolished Clause 4 in the Labour Party. Clause 4 in the Labour Party said something like um, the Labour Party is committed to uh, the workers owning the means of production or like moving towards worker ownership of the means of production. And this seems to be like, you know, like a fundamental socialist principle, right? Like, you know, the workers ought to own the factories and like the the creators of the wealth ought to control the wealth, that kind of stuff. And Blair Blair scrapped it and Blair just got like straight up, got rid of it. and then as a consequence of that, you've got New Labour, which was very like managerial class, um, had no interest at all, like no interest at all in class politics. And um, like any kind of relation between working class movements and the labour movement were completely severed. Even the pretense was severed at this point. So like that's that's how I understand it. I don't know how accurate that is. Um, see, what I'm kind of interested in, though, is say, <clears throat> like the reason I want to talk about the early days of, of, the Labour Party um, is that, you know, you're saying under Blair, it becomes a managerial party, but I think that's the way it's always been. You know, there's yeah. that famous quote where it's effectively, um, the Labour Party has got more to do with Methodism than Marxism. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's very much the sense that I get from Labour as a whole when I have looked through the history. It's never been a radical party by any means. Yeah, I mean, 1914, they're supporting World War One. Like 1918, there's a law where they, well, not a law, they they changed the constitution of the party. So you know, previously, it was a national party, but local branches had more um, power to self-organize, which means that you know. Uh, the independent Labour Party could stand within the Labour Party or, you know, someone in the Communist Party would be involved in the Labour Party. Uh, and around then, they start moving to a more formalised, more, like, managerial position where it's like, it's not even, you know, someone in the union that gets to join. It's the boss of the trade union, you know, the shop stewards are the only people yeah. that are going to the meetings. Yeah, I mean, that's what, like, Alan Johnson did, right? Um he was like the shadow chancellor for about a month um, when Ed Miliband was in power. And he like very uh, famously and notoriously now like ran as like, I used to work in a union, I'm very working class. And then when you looked a bit of his past, it wasn't quite as clear cut as that. Mm. Um, and then of course, like he started like back in landlord, <laughs> like things uh, like landlord, um, pro landlord policies and things like this. And it was like just really, really odd. Yeah. Uh, but th- I mean, Labour Party also say, didn't support the general strike of 1926. Um, and that's a huge moment in working class um, cultural history in the UK, uh, especially in somewhere like Scotland and Fife and Glasgow, where you know the Fife mining towns were on strike for a whole year. They basically lost because they didn't have the support. And a lot of, say, like very famous working class Scottish um, uh art comes from that period and it's not very generous to the labor party so like you like you think they're kind of class traitors i yeah but i think what i'm trying to say is like i think that's implicit in anything that the like they've always been doing and i think what corbynism corbyn was like the first break from that since cure hardy it's like the old like the joke that i have is basically like i'll rate the two, uh, I'll rate the, the Labour Party um, leaders, and it goes Jeremy Corbyn, Pure Hardy, everyone else is shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what do you think, Dan? Um, yeah, it's, it's 
I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I mean, to me, Labour have always seemed like a very, even by sort of Western Social Democrat standards, they're, they're a very milk toast party. Yeah. I mean, whereas, whereas the the Liberals in this country are, are capitalists that feel bad about it. I think Labour. I genuinely think that the Labour Party think that you can reform capitalism and have it work for everyone. Not, not you know, but I don't, I don't see how they can link having super rich people and a, a well, a well looked after working class. I just don't see how you can do that. It's yeah. So, so I mean, they're either they're either incompetent or deluded or. <laughs> You know, they they literally don't understand their own politics. It's it's one of the it's, or they're just like you say, class traitors, and they know what they're doing. And it's it's, I mean, I've always viewed Labour as sort of a, a safety valve where the direction of British politics is getting too hot. So you've got yeah. fourteen years of conservatism, and people are really getting pissed off. Bring in the Labour Party for a few years, cool it down. The direction of travel doesn't change; it just slows down and. You know, we'll keep we'll we'll put the pressure on again when people have had enough of this government. I think that's a really nice analogy, like the safety valve analogy of like it's um like a prophylactic of some sort to stop the <laughs> yeah the, the <laughs> aggressive um Tory party uh, continuing what they're doing or whatever. Um because like when was the, like I mean apart from Corbyn, you're right, like when have they ever really been at the kind of forefront of radical politics? Like they just I just don't see it. And what I, th- I suppose what frustrates me more is like people when they're voting around about now will still vote for Labour um, and would do even under Blair because they'll say things like, well, I grew up when Tony Blair was in power and my life was um, significantly better under these times than they would have been under the Conservative Party. And that's like, that's undoubtedly true. But I don't, I don't know, like, it seems to be the case that the economic conditions which were are which um, the times were indicative of um, seem to like generate this um, small blip of prosperity more than prosperity prosper- prosperity more than like specifically Tony Blair's policies did. Mm, yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I guess like say people say things along the lines of, well, 1945 bringing in the NHS and the welfare system, but I don't think that was done out of altruism. I think that was done out of the fact that they knew that things were going to kick off if they didn't do that. Uh, I mean, I think too much is made of saying, like, the Conservatives were already bringing up briefs about a National Health Service, where, you know, what Bevan did was inevitably going to be much more radical and better than uh, what the Tories were going to do. But within it, it's still, again, it has a lot of the seeds of where the problems that the NHS have now, and it's from its very inception, where you, you know, the way that the, the healthcare system worked in the UK before, it was you know, clearly far, far from perfect. But at least there was like some hospitals that were community led, where, you know, the nurses and the doctors were deciding that like, if you paid into it, you had a vote share in it. And the NHS just turned it into like, only administrators get to have a say in what happens. So if you're on, you know, the ward, as a nurse, you're going to have no say in the NHS and what you should and shouldn't be doing, you know? Do you think that's a consequence of the time where, I mean, during the Second World War, the British government was massively centralised. Do you think if the NHS had been founded maybe a bit earlier or a bit later, it would have adopted more of a community model? It's just that at that time, centralisation was was a big part of the, the UK government's drive to sort of fight, fight the second world war yeah partly but i also think it's there with the way that atley and bevan saw what socialism was and what yeah. it was meant to do which is effectively like we know better um and so the plebs shouldn't have um what's that scratching oh. is that me sorry <laughs> <laughs> are you knocking one off yeah <laughs> But this is making you horny, Dan. No, just a bit. <laughs> that was a concerning sound. It's <laughs> like, please, someone say something. <laughs> um, yeah, what I'm just saying is like, yeah, it's basically like we know better, and so the plebs shouldn't have 
uh, a place in discussion of how the workplace is organized. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think you're, there's definitely something to be said for this idea that social welfare movements like the NHS and state benefits and things were kind of put in as a way of stopping any kind of discussion about maybe having the need for an actual communist party coming into power. Because obviously, like in 1917 to 1920s, you had people in government really shitting themselves that the Soviet Union, the um, the Russian Revolution was going to spark off across Europe, including in the UK. And I'd imagine after the war, um, after the Second World War, because we were allies with the Soviet Union, you can imagine the mechanisms of government being pretty worried as well, again, that this was going to kick off. So, like, it's this, um, what's it called? It's not like crumbs from, there's like a, a it's not even tokenism. I've forgotten like the, the name for it. It's like when you give some people, um, oh, concessionary politics, that's it. When you yeah. give people like some things that they might want yeah. in order to stave off a bigger um, a bigger worry. Well, I think after the, the Second World War, you had a lot of soldiers that to fight fascism needed education against fascism in a sense. I know, I know my, my granddad was educated in socialist politics. Not necessarily said like this is what you need to fight it but you needed to understand what fascism was and what socialism was and what these different political ideologies were because it helped sort of boost morale to for what you're fighting for and all that sort of stuff as well but you had a, a large amount of soldiers who by the end of the war were pissed off uh, i think my my granddad fought across africa italy and he was at arnhem as well and by the end of it he was really fucked off and that a lot of them were, and they come back, and, and it was sort of the soldiers' vote that tipped Labour into victory. Mm. So I think essentially church, the Tories and Churchill would have won that election if it hadn't been for those coming back and wanting to make a better society. And part of that was the education that they received. Yeah, yeah, sure. So obviously now we've got like the modern Labour Party, and um, what the hell is that? <laughs> and uh, it's like some people in Southampton—they're just the worst. Um, so, like, obviously now we've got, like, the modern Labour Party, and in Scotland, at least, they've got, like, the Scottish Labour Party's, like, in total disarray, and we've, like, I say we, the Scottish Labour Party have got, like, no central narrative, so, like, it yeah. used to be the case that in Scotland, everyone would just vote Labour from, like, the 1980s up until, what, 19, well, 2000 and something, I suppose, it was overwhelmingly Labour-dominated, no one else got a look in. Well, here's, then, sorry. Sorry. I've got a quick, right, here's my question. When does Scottish Labour become Scottish Labour? Like, at what point does it become, like, there's a separate party in Scotland? That's like devolution, right? Is that when that right. happened? So that do was what? Yeah, it's like, when do you support, like, 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 is it always been a national thing or was Scottish Labour sort of decentralised for a bit? You know, so like that. This is great, right? Because like the whole reason Scottish Labour became a thing was because Tony Blair thought this was the best way to like obliterate the threat of the SNP. <laughs> um, ex like explicitly said that, and um, this will like totally destroy the SNP. If we have devolution, it will obliterate any chance that the SNP will ever see anything like power in Scotland. Yeah. So it says on the Wikipedia, founded nineteen ninety four. Nineteen ninety four. Yeah, that'd be about right. Yeah. Uh, so what happens in 1994 that means that um, they need a separate party, though? When was Dunblane? Was that around about then as well? Uh, were you saying that Dunblane directly led to <laughs> Yeah, so like, there was a famous thing where like Blair and John Major both went to Dunblane while Major was in power. And um, Major was booed, like horrifically booed when he got to Dunblane. And um, I think there was some sort of thing about Blair trying to like appease the Scots by like making them by making them appear like a more sympathetic figure. And I swear, like there was a thing about like Blair trying to do this via saying, "Oh, look, if you vote for Labour, we'll give you all this stuff. You you can have your own like Labour Party and all that kind of shit." Right. I'm not saying like um, like Blair was like, "Hold on a second, now is the perfect time to start a political sure. party, like, massacre like loads of kids." But yeah, I mean, say the 1990s is definitely when Scottish like politics starts drifting away from 
labor. That's when you start seeing the S&P making gains in places. Um, not in not massive ways, um, but definitely, you know, they start putting the the war banners up, you know? Yeah. Uh, so carry on with the point that you were having there. Um, so yeah, like Scottish Labour um, in the 2011 election um, where, like this is like the Scottish election, not like the UK election, had like such an absolute shit show of an election. Like the leader was a guy called Ian Gray who did not know his own mind, never mind like the mind of the Scottish people. And I swear there was like four or five policy reversals in a week. It was it was ridiculous. The SNP, on the other hand, um, had fairly synonymous policies, actually, when Labour settled on their policies. The SNP's manifesto was basically copied and pasted, but their politicians were far more slick and they had this really... Um, I don't agree, but I didn't agree with it uh, at the time. They had this really coherent central narrative, um, a positive central narrative about an independent, outward-looking Scotland. Um, and I think having that coherence of message across, where in Labour, we were all doing different things. Like, I mean, you guys know I uh, stood for the Labour Party um, in the election that year um, in Orkney. And, like, that again to say that? <laughs> is that like incriminating yeah. um, I, was, I was just saying I stood for um, Labour in Orkney in the 2011 election 2011, right, okay. and um, I was like told nothing so like I was told um, I was told look we need someone to stand in Orkney because no one else will um, <laughs> they're like basically the party up there the party members up there were, are like they'll not mind me saying this but they're like they're pretty old people and like they don't they don't really have like the energy for it um, they might now, um, but yeah, they didn't then. So they said, would you mind doing it? I was like, sure. So um, once I got there, I could honestly say whatever the hell I wanted. And there was no oversight at all. Um, yeah. there's, normally, if you stand in an election, what you say is tightly controlled and you've got to have it vetted and proofed by the kind of central the central party to make sure you're on message. There mm -hmm. was like none of that. And I know that my SNP... Uh, interlocutor, a lady called Donna Hedlett, actually. Um, I know that she was getting daily briefings from the SNP about what the line was, what the policy was, what the defence was, and um, how the argument ran. And she didn't win. Um, as it happens, Orkney is the safest Lib Dem seat in the UK, um, or it was in, at the time. Um, and like, yeah, like it was a, the whole thing was an absolute disaster. Um, I, I came last if you're interested not <laughs> I, like for a variety of reasons I like to console myself with, by saying that the most obvious reason is that Scottish Labour always come last in Orkney um, but yeah yeah I mean the the Isles are known as Lib Dem safe seats which I'd actually be really interested to talk about another time because that's one of those like when you're looking at the election map and you're like oh yeah why is Orkney a Lib Dem um, but I mean, during the um, during the first parts of devolution, the Scottish Labour Party and the Lib Dems were in coalition, isn't that right? Yeah. So Donald Durr was the leader of the Scottish Labour Party when the Scottish Parliament opened, mm -hmm. and he was known for like a few things. He was known for being a bloody ruthless lawyer, and he was known for being really, really smart. Um, one of my friends in Glasgow. Um, yeah, I think he was like, he was very old, but we used to play chess. And he um, moved to Glasgow from Cambridge and he got in touch with Donald Dewar. I think Donald Dewar was friends with his wife. And uh, he said, hey, I'm looking to move up to Glasgow. And there's an area called Bells Hill. And if you don't know anything about Bells Hill, Bells Hill at the time was pretty rough. And um, Donald Dewar said to my friend, oh, some of my best clients are from Bells Hill, meaning... It's full of criminals. But my friend took this to mean like, oh, he must mean um, like there's like full of people who need expensive lawyers. But I think to his credit, Donald Dewar did defend a lot of like working class people uh, while he was a lawyer. Um, but yeah, interesting guy. But yeah, he was, um, I think they were initially a coalition government. Okay, so we're definitely going to move on a little bit and start talking about Scottish Labour a little bit more. But then... Just give us some of your thoughts because you're you're from Dan South, aren't you? 
Well, the Midlands. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's further south of Scotland. Yeah, you're all southern bastards to uh, <laughs> people in Yorkshire who say like we're from the north. You're like you're not from the north. <laughs> How dare you, Northerner? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, I mean, how old are you, Dan? You're in your thirties, like the rest. Thirty-seven. Of yeah, exactly. So you'll. I mean, yeah, we're all about the same age. So give us, you know, your sort of thoughts on um, devolution and Scot, like how Scottish Labour is seen from your point of view. Uh, they're a bit of a non-entity as far as... Yeah, yeah well, that's what we think. So. <laughs> I mean, in terms of coverage in England, I mean, I, I don't understand the point of them when the SNP seems to hold exactly the same policy platform and, as Will said, they have the, the central narrative of an independent Scotland. I mean, if if I was Scottish and I was subject to constant Tory governance from Westminster, I'd fucking want to be independent, to be honest. Um, I I don't understand the union as a whole in the modern age, really. It it's, seems a bit of an anachronism, to be honest. Mm, um, yeah. And I, I understand completely the, the popularity of the SNP. If, I mean, to be honest, I, I think if you had an English national party without the baggage that comes with that, um sort of terminology in England and the attachment to the far right, I think you would get, I think you'd get quite, get quite popular to be honest. Um, Cause I, 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 I think the union sentiment isn't that strong amongst people that are kind of more left leaning. I do know a couple of left, left leaning people that are unionists and it's only unionist in the sense that they feel like, countries work better together but i don't see why you have to be dictated to from another country for that to happen anyway so i mean yeah scottish labor i don't in fact listening to to you two talk about it now it's more i understand more why that they deviated so far from corbyn over the past five years, because I, I never realised how independent it was from the actual English Labour Party. So, I mean, I don't see how Labour could win an election, given, it, well, in the UK as a whole, given that, that separation. If you've got two parties that are supposed to be on the same platform, kind of running counter to each other, it's never going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, just a quick note on this one. You don't need to put your hand up, I think. Okay, you... cool. Um, so, I just uh, just want to say, like, um, I think I was also probably one of these people captured by Dan, um, who was, like, left-wing and pro-union. And I think, like, the entirety of my argument at the time um, was something like, we don't need another border. Like, so it was, like, one of these, like, no borders, like, kind of positions. But, yeah, like, I totally agree with what Dan said. And I think the main thing is it comes down to that like the Celtic nation's nationalism comes from not being something and that thing yeah. in England. Yeah. Like, so our nationalism comes from like, there's a negation. It's like, well, we're not English. So <laughs> like, I, I, I always get the sense from that sort of Celtic nationalism that it's, it's um, sort of formed more against, like you said, against an oppressive force more so than wanting to be a supremacist force. Yeah, exactly. And it's like English nationalism is very much inward facing thing. It's, it's, about, it's English exceptionalism. The two are tied together. Yeah, exactly. And what I mean, my line about nationalism is like nationalism is like an asshole. If you know how to play with it properly, you're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> but if you don't, you're just going to be covered in shit. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, let's um let's move on to say uh, how what we thought about Corbyn getting in. So when did Corbyn get in again? It's 2015, wasn't 2015, it? Yeah. And so like I mean, I think it's safe to say that that would be a shock to everyone. Um well, I I didn't necessarily anticipate him winning outright in the way he did. Um but given the, the, the sentiment towards, uh, well, I, I think what really solidified it was when Labour decided to abstain on, I think it was a vote on disability benefits. Might have mm. been on uh, PIP or something like that. Yeah, um, right. 
and it was was it Harriet Harman was the stand-in leader? Yeah, she was the the um, deputy leader, and she like took the PMQs while they were like working at a leadership yeah, contest yeah. when Ed stood down. But that that was during the middle of the leadership election, and at, at that point, that was when Corbynism really got his foothold in. I, I think I think people were kind of. I think there was votes heading his way because people pissed stuff at what was seen as the of just go along with whatever the Tories want attitude. Yeah. Of Labour under Miliband. And I think that really was well, well fuck it. <laughs> We've had enough of this shit. Let's get someone in that's actually gonna oppose. Yeah. And it's kinda of weird to think about like Miliband almost keeps switching sides and looking like he's not going like I think Miliband maybe has the potential heart of a right person but there's just something that keeps making him drift meltwards and (laughs) there was points in that last election where they were like you know there's Miliband behind Corbyn and he was saying the right things and you're like wait is Ed Miliband like actually all right and it was just like that that thing that the Labour Party does, um, which definitely existed before Blair, but was basically given steroids with Blair of drifting to the right and capitulating to capital and, you know, the Daily Telegraph. Yeah. Um, And so, like, Corbyn within the party was able to give a little bit of room, and Ed Miliband didn't seem like the biggest dickhole. But again, like, as soon as he's gone, he just seems to, like Corbyn, I'm saying, like, Miliband seems to have just receded back into male territory. I think Miliband, for me, is is a lot like Starmer in the sense that I think generally they're decent people. I don't, I don't ever get the impression that they're, like, like Blair always had a, a touch of something evil about him. There's something missing yeah. to that bloke. But, um, Conscience. Yeah, exactly. But Star, Starmer and Miliband are two very much cut from the same cloth. Um, and I think they're decent people who are heavily influenced by the politics of the system that they're in. Um, to the point where I think it kind of, if you want to play the game, it'll override some, some of that innate decency. Yeah, I think like Keir Starmer's like really placatory towards what he thinks is the public mood. Yeah. So Tony Blair brought in um, a policy by um, opinion poll, and like really, really ran with that. Um, like and yeah, like uh, there, there are no words to describe my contempt for Tony Blair. I, w- I worry sometimes that Keir Starmer's kind of the same because he wants to be seen as like the sensible opposition. So like Corbyn was like branded um, a radical who had a bunch of like naive and stupid policies and Keir Starmer is so like desperate to be seen as like not naive and more um, working with than working against that he'll um, he'll just like he'll not criticize the Conservative Party when they fucking kill 52,000 yeah. people in the UK through their shit policies he'll not criticize them when a literally an expert comes out and says if we'd locked down two weeks earlier when everyone asked for it there would be 20,000 20, fewer deaths at least um, he'll not like stand up to landlords, um, like and just all like just these waves upon waves of policies where he had the chance to like, not only I think like do the right thing, which is like fundamentally what he should be doing, but also he could have stuck the knife in, um, yeah. and I, I don't understand why he didn't because I think the country, I think Boris Johnson had a lot of goodwill, but I think the country, um, the country are now kind of angry with the Conservative government. I mean, I think Starmer is pretty much someone that tries to get on the bully's side. So it's yeah. like Labour have like just spent a lot of time with the press and the Tories, like going, "Stop hitting yourself! Stop hitting yourself! Stop hitting yeah. yourself!" And then now that Starmer is coming, he's like, "Right, everyone, I've got this." And then he just actually genuinely starts hitting himself yeah. as well. And I hope that that all like. You know, the son will be like, you know what? He's actually fine because he's, you know, doing what we tell him to. And it's it's like basic one oh one, like don't don't succeed ground to the billies. Yeah. So, more, uh, yeah, I, I mean, if you wanted a one word summary of his leadership so far, for me it'd be capitulation. Yeah, yeah. that's good. 
Um, I'd like to capitulate it into the sun. <laughs> nice. Uh, I think, no, I, I genuinely think that Stormer is, I wouldn't say he's um, got his heart in the right place. I think he's a very insidious person. I think um, I think you might be, be be right about that, but at the moment I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt. Not that I will vote for Labour under him, but, it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, I, it's I, I want to see the policies, but I, there's no trust as far as yeah. I'm concerned. But it's things like, you know, what he did in the past, BG, yeah. you know, like he basically let Jerry, uh, Jerry, um, Jimmy Savile get away, you know? Yeah. He set up 24-hour courts to, um, like, prosecute the 2011 protests. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to see, it's that, like, him and Angela Reiner taking the knee. Um, oh, God. You're part of the systemic racist system um and you're not doing anything other than tokenism to to avoid that you know not only that but they've really fucking set us, set themselves up for a fail there because the leaked report that come out about their about oh, anti-semitism yeah. within the labor party indicated that there was a lot of racism at the, the core of that i mean some of the stuff they were calling in diane abbott and some of the other black mps was fucking disgusting and to, to stand there and have a photo up taking the knee is so fucking embarrassingly performative when you're not interested in reforming a system that is fucking just massively racist. Well, I mean, you openly criticised people that statue, said that top of that statue of Edward Colston, right? Like, he didn't just say, <laughs> yeah. I support those people because, like, you know, that guy was a prick and he should have had a statue toppled. He said, oh, now, now, we need to use the law. Um, like, though, he kind of did the whole, like, cop thing. Yeah. Even though, I mean, they've been trying for 20 years through the proper channels to get that thing yeah, taken down. Yeah. Um, but that being said, talk, like, talking about Diane Abbott, the Labour Party, um, unlike, say, the Lib Dems, does have some genuinely really solid um, MPs. Yeah. Not a lot, but, I mean, like... We're far left of Diane Abbott, but yeah, yeah. she's fundamentally like is a good person, you know. Yeah, I agree um, with that. Jeremy Corbyn is like fundamentally a good person. I I've got a lot of time for say someone like Don Butler as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, Don Butler's awesome. But it's it just often seems like a party at war with itself in that term, you know, constantly. Yeah, um, I think, um, I mean, like, you had, like, the notorious RLB, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, um, <laughs> who, like, again, is a solid person. I think she would have been a good leader for the Labour Party, um, but they chose a white guy in a suit with, like, a nice haircut again. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's another thing, really, that really pissed me off. The amount of people saying, oh, we, Labour needs a woman leader when uh, Jeremy Corbyn was leader, and then all of a sudden it's, oh, no, no, we need... We need an electable leader. Yeah, not that woman. <laughs> <laughs> we need we need a woman leader that thinks the way we want the, want them to think, basically. Yeah, fucking joke, isn't it? So, um, like, can I ask you guys like a question? I suppose like yeah. um, I'm I'm really conflicted about this, and like um, I, you guys have like perhaps like a better political um, sensitivity, like or um, intuition than me, maybe I reckon. Um, so, like. I probably would vote for Keir Starmer's Labour Party purely because, as you guys know, I work in a secondary school and yeah. we have been obliterated, like properly obliterated um, during the past 10 years by the Conservative government. The school I currently work in has had something like, I think it was £120,000 knocked off our budget. And we were by no means the worst hit, like by no means at all. In fact, we did better than over 50% of schools in the UK um, and if Keir Starmer's saying like look I'm going to like make sure your schools are alright it's kind of hard for me to like say I'm not going to vote for you because the people I'm going to harm are going to be the kids that I'm going to have to look at in the morning <laughs> uh, coming is, into school with like no food at all. This is essentially what I mean about Labour being a safety valve in that yeah. I, I completely understand why people will vote for it. I, I wouldn't ever criticise anyone that did um, for wanting wanting things to be easier for people that need it, and and like for all their faults, Labour 
under Blair, they did do a lot of decent stuff. I mean, it's it's what any state should be doing. It's spending money on its citizens. It's not, you know, it's not fundamentally radical. It's just that the right wing in this country are complete bastards. So when you've got that, anything that isn't that is is better. Yeah. But, but I mean, um, for me, it's my local area. It's a Tory safe seat, and it has been for a long, long time. Um, the only time uh, New Labour won here, but it, it, there's, it, it's something, I mean, I think it's in Wikipedia, actually. It's called the Kidderminster Effect, where Labour won of on a campaign to save the local hospital. Pardon? Of course, the Tories like it if it's got Kitty in the name. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I agree. But um, yeah, so basically, they campaigned on saving the local hospital, which was due to be shut down, and they wanted to build a super hospital at Worcester, just like twelve miles up the road, um, and that that is for the whole of Worcestershire rather than local hospitals in each town. Um, Labour got I remember in. Remember this story. Yeah, well, Labour got in within a year, the hospital was closed. So both Labour and the Conservatives then were locked out of power in the local area for um, a local independent called Health Concern. Mm. Um, the the party themselves were a mix of, it's quite a strange mix actually, a lot of Conservatives from the local area, but also a lot of the further left Labourites from the local area. They were headed up by a doctor called Richard Taylor, who's record in parliament was excellent apart from uh gay rights for some reason is his um election record on that was pretty bad but everything else he was he was essentially a very good left-wing mp um so for years i i, I actually didn't ever vote labor until 2015 election because we had a good solid local mp um i voted labor in council elections occasionally when I thought there was a chance of them overturning the Conservatives. But generally, it's, it's such a solid Tory safe seat. It's OK for me to say that I, I don't need to vote for Starm because no one around here is going to fucking vote for him anyway. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, I've never voted Labour because I um, sort of, you know, the background I come from is very much a case of uh, you vote for Labour, but you don't trust them. Um, and, you know, that's just the, you know, the trade union, working class, Scottish Leith history, you know? Um, and when I got to voting age, the, you know, the SNP were an option there. And again, it's like, you know, as anarchists, we kind of vote with, you know, holding your nose over the, the pad. But in some ways, yeah, it's just like, you know, you're picking, like, the you know the least worst option you're the pick of the steals um and labor it's basically i probably you know at some point in my head i said i'll never vote for labor uh i don't trust them i never will do and corbyn really made me double think that i really put a lot of thought into like you know under corbyn i might actually vote labor if the right circumstances came along. They basically didn't because my, my constituency's uh, SNP safe seat. And uh, my, uh, the person that I, my constituency is in uh, Leith is Tommy Shepherd, the guy that used to run the stand. And so it's one of those like, you know him? I know him personally a little bit. He's a solid lad. He's got good politics. He's got better politics than the, the labor person that's running. Uh, and that's been the way it has been for like, you know, the last three elections effectively. Um, and where my parents live, we're the first place that I voted up in Blair Gary. Um, you'll see the, the SNP uh, candidate there is Pete Wisher. He used to be in Runrig. No way. Yeah. Shit. Uh, he used to play the keyboards for Runrig. And you know, like, <laughs> like, like, I don't trust SNP either, but you know, Christmas Eve, you go down the pub, there's Pete Wisher, he buys everyone around, you have a wee chin wag with him, you know, you go to a play in Perth, Pete Wisher will be there, he's, you know, he's actually there doing stuff. I've met Ruth Davidson way more than I've met anyone in the Labour Party. Yeah. Gallery openings or gigs or 
um, comedy events and things like that. These are the things that get you elected. You need to be there. You need to be, you know, shaking palms. Like I've seen, you know, Alex Salmon in pubs. I've never seen anyone in the Labour Party in a pub. You know, I don't know what they'd look like by sight. Um, and so there's just, and now that I live in Ireland, there's just no reason or I see option of why to vote Labour. Yeah, I mean, like when you think about Nicola Sturgeon as well, like, and I think this really shows the disparity between the sort of politics that can happen in England versus the sort of politics that can happen in Scotland. You see who Nicola Sturgeon is, and she's like from govern in glasgow um which like makes me quite hostile towards her because i suspect she's a rangers fan um <laughs> but you know like she's from like an absolute shithole went to um glasgow university got a degree in politics or whatever and like worked as an activist for years um yeah. she's just like she's an absolute unit and like i don't there's a lot to not like about nicola sturgeon but she's such a formidable politician and if nothing else she's got at least the courage of her convictions i don't know if you guys saw it was in the papers i think yesterday that scotland want to roll out an eleven thousand pounds a year universal basic income and just having that like we might disagree with the ubi we might not but like just having that political imagination at the moment um i think is at, at least you're trying to think what the hell can we do in the wake of coronavirus yeah and like what are labor doing like, their leader's what? Richard Leonard? Who the fuck is he? I mean, Labour have only got one Scottish MP in, you know, um, in Westminster. Isn't that right? I think that sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it, when you consider yeah. the roots of the party as well? Exactly. And it's just like they're consistently outflanked on the left by a neoliberal party. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting when you talk about Nicola Sturgeon. I think amongst my friends, I think she would be after Corbyn, because Corbyn brought a lot of my non-political friends into politics. Um, after after Corbyn, I think she was one of the more popular politicians, really. Yeah. Amongst my my non sort of non-political friends, because uh, regardless of what I think the neoliberals and centrists tend to think, people like someone that stands up for them. Yeah. I mean, Corbyn wasn't great at it. I've, I've, I've never voted for Corbyn really to to fight against the Tories at an election. What I wanted was Corbyn to try and reform the Labour Party, democratise the Labour Party, bring the membership in, and give the membership more of a say. And then, uh, for me, Corbynism was like a ten-year project. Twenty twenty-five, you might be in a good position to mm. change change leader, have a good fucking Barney of an election. Definitely, um, but. Uh, the, the return to the centre for Labour for me is so fucking disappointing. It was inevitable. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that last election was a, was a real fucking battering. I think it's quite noticeable in that conversation where we basically just like went Blair and then Starmer and we didn't talk about Corbyn at all, really. Yeah. So I think that would be like a good conversation for like another, like another episode that's like this where it's just like getting down into... Yeah. Corbyn and what we thought about it because it's such a it was such a weird and interesting period mm -hmm. and like the way that I basically feel about it was when Corbyn first got in I thought it was bullshit and I didn't think it was going to go anywhere and then after a sustained campaign where like lots of people basically spent lots of time arguing with me I capitulated and sort of got behind the Corbyn train and now I feel like an absolute fucking rube for doing that. <laughs> and I should have stuck with my guns and been like, no, he, like, he might be a nice guy, but like, you don't want a nice guy in a knife fight. You want fucking, you know, the crazy guy with the knife. <laughs> that was always my biggest criticism of him is that he's not a firebrand. He's too conciliatory. Um, yeah. if, if he'd have been, uh, if he'd have had sort of Barry Gardner's fire, or even I John McDonald, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like John McDonald. Yeah, like John, I fucking love John McDonald. I wish he'd have been the leader. I'm the same. Like, I think, he'd, like, I'm a big fan of John McDonald. He commissioned that report. The, um, I'm looking at it right now, it's like, which is why I'm squinting away from you. It's called <laughs> um, Alternative Ownership Models. Yeah. Um, and he's talking about um, cooperative model systems, worker-owned collectives, shit like that. 
when the hell was the last time the Labour Party had like a document called alternative ownership models? He really knows his fucking shit, John McDonnell. Didn't yeah. he like start pointing at stuff as a joke and saying, I nationalise that? Yeah, Greg's. Greg's, yeah, that was it. He'd be like, yeah. Yeah, nationalise the shit out of Greg's. Okay, exactly. good. But that was it, you know, people were, wasn't it the whole like, it was myling class was like, you just can't point at things. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he was like, watch this. Yeah. Hold my beer. Yeah. Nationalized myling class. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants that though. Yeah. Um, right. So I feel that's a good place to, to wrap up this episode. Um, thanks for listening. Um, if you've got any questions send them to us uh, there's a website where you can get contacts we're on Facebook and Spotify uh, give us a like subscribe uh, tell your friends tell your enemies more importantly because uh, we would like to see someone like Brendan O'Neill have an absolute shit fit of the things that we say I love how much you hate Brendan O'Neill <laughs> it's beautiful hate. your um, hatred is so pure right so that was another week's um, anime podcast for you i keep on saying anime like as in like you know the kind of japanese thing but it's obviously anime um thank you very much for listening and for giving us your time and your attention as james just said um get your friends and relatives and enemies and people you're completely indifferent to to subscribe and give us a listen that'd be really fantastic um you can follow us on twitter at anomi z a-n-o-m-i-e and then a capital letter z uh, James is on Twitter, he's always worth a follow at EcoClown. I'm on Twitter as Kushway421. And um, I think Dan's not on Twitter, but Dan has a, a YouTube channel you might want to check out called Errorist. Dan makes really outstanding music, so check it out. Uh, Alex, who's normally on the podcast, who wasn't on this week, is on as Anarcho Surreal. So give us all a follow, and um, by all means, send us your abuse. That'd be really great. Thanks, guys, for another week. Bye.